Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The pandemic led to an economic crisis like no other. But the recovery brings with it its own challenges. Inflation is rising. Can central banks wind down their support without sending markets into freefall? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Scharnberg, finance editor at The Economist, and also on today's show, why sponsors of the Tokyo Olympics are in a bind. They're basically worried that, you know, this was something that was supposed to make their brands look good and may end up being a bit of a PR disaster. But first, as the world emerges from the pandemic-induced crisis, economies are bouncing back faster than predicted. On July the 1st, America's Congressional Budget Office doubled its 2021 growth forecast to more than 7%. But the rebound has also brought less welcome news. Prices are rising faster than expected, much faster. Now the most important question looming over the world economy for consumers, investors and central banks alike is will this rate of inflation last? To get to grips with all this, I'm joined by Henry Kerr, our economics editor, and Alice Forward, our Wall Street correspondent. Henry, Alice, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Good to be here, Rachna. Henry, let's start with inflation. Just how fast is it rising and how much is it outpacing economists' forecasts? Well, how fast it is rising uh, varies a lot depending on where you are. America is seeing the fastest pickup in inflation. At the start of the year, everyone knew that headline inflation was going to rise a lot because the comparison with a year ago would start comparing with the beginning of the pandemic when prices fell. But in America, there's been this big surprise where core inflation has picked up a lot. And actually, if you look just at the past three months, core inflation, which is excluding energy prices and food prices because they're volatile, is over 8% on an annualized basis, which is obviously really high. The rest of the rich world has also had an inflation surprise, but nothing like what's happened in America where it really has shot up. And Alice, you're in New York. Tell us why inflation is so important for Wall Street and investors at this point in time. First of all, inflation literally matters for a lot of investors. So take bond investors, for example. They buy treasuries or other countries' bonds, and that's a sort of fixed income stream for, say, 10 or 20 years. And if inflation is very high, then the returns to those bond investments will be worse. Also, if the economy is growing again and equity investors are looking at how they think companies will do, if there are a lot of inflationary pressures, that can cause problems for companies in their supply chains. So inflation is sort of literally important for investors, but inflation is also very important because it determines what the Fed is likely to do. And whether the Fed is loosening or tightening policy is a very, very important thing for investors to watch because 
when monetary policy is loose, you tend to see asset prices rising. And as it gets tighter, um, it can cause some volatility in markets. Now, we'll return to the subject of the Federal Reserve and what it might do next soon. But let's take the economic picture first. Henry, what's going on here? Why is inflation going through the roof? So the thing that I think has caught people unawares is that there's been this big boom in demand for durable goods. And that's a global phenomenon, but it's really been in proportion to the degree of uh, stimulus that's taken place. So people in America were getting these big stimulus checks. And what they did is they went out and spent them on these lockdown-friendly purchases, things like cars, home improvement, uh, sporting goods. That's happened elsewhere as well, but to a lesser extent, because the stimulus was smaller and more targeted than it was in America. And then the firms who are producing these goods have been caught out somewhat and supply couldn't keep up. So at the beginning of the pandemic, car makers slashed production of cars because it was the start of a recession. You assume demand would would fall. And as they've tried to ramp it back up, they've run up against uh, supply constraints. For instance, there's a global shortage of microchips, which is causing problems in the supply chains for all kinds of goods that have been popular during the pandemic. So you've had this durable goods boom that's run up against supply constraints. And that's really what's what's driven the inflation that goes beyond what everyone could see coming very easily. The surprise is really is really that story, I think. And now that vaccination programmes are enabling economies to reopen, are we seeing services sector inflation picking up as well? So we are a bit, especially in the economies that are furthest along towards reopening the service sector. Those bottlenecks I was talking about should eventually ease. Consumers are going out there and seeing really high prices for things like used cars and might prefer to spend on services instead, they will naturally substitute away. But I would say that the big question for inflation going forward is how much services inflation replaces goods inflation. And there are two facts I would would point to there. One is the labour market. And we're in this strange situation at the moment when especially pandemic affected industries like leisure and hospitality are seeing a labour shortage. And so demand is coming back. But the question is, will workers come back as quickly? Uh, If you get a lot of wage inflation, that's going to feed through to prices. Another service price that's really going to matter is rents. Rents are typically very cyclical. So you would expect there to be some rental inflation. And if that really roars back strongly, then that's another potential source of inflation that could replace the goods bottlenecks we're seeing now. Now, Alice, the big question is whether this inflation is just a feature of reopening. Um, The Fed is very fond of of using the word transitory to describe it, or whether the inflation will last. What do we know about um, investors and and consumers' expectations of inflation? So just to put into context, you know, how investors are thinking about this, since November, most investors have been essentially betting on the same things, which is this sort of big reopening play. So that's that companies that had really suffered in the pandemic, like cruise line operators and retailers, uh, would do very well again. Commodities like copper and lumber would continue to climb in price as industry reopened, and also that interest rates would go higher, and that was driven by strong growth and rising inflation expectations. And betting on that suite of positions had done very well for most investors for the sort of seven months up to the June Fed meeting. Since the June Fed meeting, when the Federal Reserve signaled that they might start tightening policy a little bit quicker 
than they'd previously suggested. That seems to have bifurcated investors into two groups. And the first group are those who are still sort of sticking with that reopening idea. And they don't think that the Fed is going to come in very aggressively and tighten policy because they are assuming that inflation will be transitory. And then there's the other group which thinks that things have really got overextended, that the economy has been pumped up too much, and that as Henry's talked about, some of those sort of reinforcing effects as inflation migrates from goods to services will cause longer term issues for the Fed that will cause them to have to tighten much, much more quickly. And they are reallocating their portfolio away from that sort of suite of of reopening bets. Now, we've so far talked really about the rich world here, if not just about America's economy. How does thinking about inflation change when we turn to emerging markets, um, what are the consequences for them of rising inflation and potentially Fed action at some point later in the year? Henry? So the thing that makes rich world central banks really relaxed about temporary rises in inflation is that inflation expectations remain around their target. They know that gives them the sort of room for inflation to fluctuate in the short term. And then in theory, it should be fine in the long run. If you're in an emerging market, you haven't quite got that luxury. It's more likely that inflation could be sort of let out of the bag and and, and rise in a a self-fulfilling way. And so what we've seen in recent weeks, as globally inflation has surprised the upsides, we've seen some emerging central banks tighten policy. Brazil and Russia and Hungary have raised interest rates, for example. And the other thing that emerging markets have to worry about is that it's not just inflation in their own backyards that matters. It's inflation in America, because if inflation in America prompts the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates faster, then it's likely that capital will flow out of emerging markets into US markets, and that will put downward pressure on emerging markets' currencies. What happens when your currency gets cheaper? It's more expensive to import things, and hey, presto, your inflation goes up. So these emerging markets are also worried about importing inflation via the exchange rate, and that ultimately leads back to the Fed. So it's really consequential for them. That concern from emerging market central banks is sort of very well justified by history, because the last time the Federal Reserve was tightening policy after a big crisis was in 2013, when they started tapering their asset purchases that they'd done for the the global financial crisis. And that led to this sort of year of extreme currency depreciations. There were these five countries in particular, uh, Brazil, Indonesia, India, Turkey, and South Africa, who were nicknamed the Fragile Five because their currencies fell so dramatically in response to the Federal Reserve beginning to slow its asset purchases then. So they've learned from that lesson. They don't want to be behind the Fed when it starts to tighten. So Alice, emerging markets are going to be watching the Fed. Investors are going to be watching the Fed. What should we expect from the Fed over the next few months? So investors have a very clear playbook for how they think the Fed will move. Right now, the Fed is providing support to the American economy in two ways. It has interest rates at zero, and it is also currently buying $120 billion worth of assets, uh, $80 billion of treasuries and $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities each month. And those purchases are sort of keeping long-term interest rates low, in addition to the short-term interest rates, which are anchored at zero. And the natural progress of policy as the Fed begins to tighten is that they will first slow down the rate at which they are buying assets. They expect the Fed to talk about that process 
tapering over the next couple of meetings and announce it towards the end of the year. And then that the pace of asset purchases will be slowed throughout 2022 until about September. And then once that process is complete, that is when the Fed will then move on to thinking about whether or not it should be raising its short-term interest rates as well. Now, Henry, in your view, given the rise of inflation and the increasing strength of the economy, are the Fed's asset purchases, its quantitative easing or QE, still justified? Well, it's a very hard question to answer, Rajna, because no one really knows what effect the Fed's asset purchases have. And I say that with trepidation because economists and central bankers will tell you that QE is a tool in which we have justified and growing confidence. And in a sense, that's true and that everyone is convinced that it works in a way that they weren't a decade ago. But there's quite a lot of division over exactly how it works. Some people think it's sort of mechanically holding down bond yields. And then some people say it only really works as a signalling tool, that QE is part of this sort of complex dance that central bankers play with markets, whereby they sort of signal where interest rates are going to go. And that investors pay attention to tapering, but only because it really signals when to expect interest rates to rise, because everyone knows that's what's coming next. And the implication of that, if it is all signalling, is that if you manage your signals well enough, then it doesn't really matter how quickly you, you, you taper or how dramatically your balance sheet shrinks. I think it's definitely the time for the Fed to be thinking about more hawkish policy, but it's not entirely clear what the effects of unwinding QE will be. Now, Alice, you've told us already why tapering is such a sensitive subject, especially in emerging markets. What's the risk that markets freak out and that the Fed makes a a misstep? So the reaction to tapering of asset purchases in 2013 was was pretty extreme, uh, both in emerging market currencies and in in US stocks, you know, which also fell quite sharply. The Fed had never done QE before that crisis, and it had never had to undo it before. And there is a sense this time around that the Fed is sort of very cognizant to make sure that it doesn't surprise markets in the same way that it perhaps did in 2013. So as Henry says, you know, if you if the Fed manages its signals well enough, tapering might not be such a hugely sort of sensitive triggering event for markets. But at the same time, there has been this huge run up in valuations of almost all asset prices in the states, you know, across housing, equities, high yield debt, asset prices have really been on an absolute tear. And part of that rests on the idea that long-term interest rates are low. And so that might begin to make you nervous about how high valuations are across assets right now. Henry, would you agree? Yeah, just to say that this debate about exactly what central banks should do with their balance sheets is one that's taking place globally. We've had the Reserve Bank of Australia say it's going to taper its purchases. The Bank of England has really uh, been thinking hard about its balance sheet, and it's thinking about upending this order between QE and rates. And the governor, Andrew Bailey, has floated the idea of, of selling assets before raising interest rates for various reasons. So I do think that this question hanging over the future of these enormous central bank balance sheets is a key one facing policymakers over the next few years. Henry Kerr, Alice Forward, as ever, thank you both so much for coming on Money Talks. Thanks, Rachna. It's been a pleasure. For more from Henry and Alice on the biggest question facing the world economy, check out the new Money Talks newsletter. 
It goes out every Thursday and you can sign up free right now at economist.com slash money talks. That's economist.com slash money talks. And you can find the links in the notes for this episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And finally. The Olympics are usually a bonanza for corporate sponsors. Stadium billboards and TV outbreaks are plastered with the names of energy companies, drinks, airlines and sportswear brands. In the run-up to past games, companies have jumped at the chance to be associated with the Olympic ideals of heroic, athletic ability and limitless optimism, all in front of an audience of millions. But this year, what was supposed to be a golden PR opportunity has turned out to be anything but. The sponsors are in a bit of a bind, to be honest. It's turned into a bit of a minefield for their reputations. Matthew Valencia is The Economist's Deputy Business Affairs Editor. One problem is there's this possible absence of spectators, or or more likely uh, greatly reduced numbers. And there are no foreign spectators allowed at the Games. And of course, there's the possibility still of cancellation, although at this stage, that looks unlikely. But this was something that was supposed to make their brands look good and may end up being a bit of a PR disaster. How good a business opportunity are the Olympic Games usually? Well, commercialism has long been a part of the Games. Kodak advertised in the results book uh, of the the first modern Games in, in 1896, and thereafter there was increasing amounts of advertising. But the turning point for, for commercialism was the LA Games in 1984, the Los Angeles Games. That was the first Games that was largely financed by corporate sponsors. And it even made a bit of a profit, which was you know, a rare thing and remains a rare thing for, for an Olympic Games. And this Olympics, the Tokyo Olympics, has been something of a record breaker. You've got the, you know, the billions of dollars that they're getting from the so-called top TOP sponsors. These are huge multinationals like Coca-Cola, Visa, Airbnb, and about a dozen other companies that, that sign contracts to partner with the Olympics, stretching over several games at a time. But then you also have actually a bit more than $3 billion that Japan's raised from between 40 and 50 domestic sponsors. And that's more than twice the previous record for domestic sponsorship of an Olympic Games. But the actual financial benefits for both the cities and for corporate sponsors of hosting games can be nebulous. Uh, and one of the people I spoke to about this is the sports economist, Andrew Zimbalist. There seems to be a presumption that when you host the games, you get put on the world stage and then you get all this good publicity and tourism and trade and investment. But in fact, there's very little evidence that that happens. It seems in many cases that the city image gets tarnished. It was tarnished in Mexico City, certainly in 1968. People became more aware of police violence. 
pollution in Mexico. 1976 in Montreal, there was a cost overrun of over nine times. 2016 in Rio, there were all sorts of problems having to do with economic mismanagement. And sponsorship of the Tokyo Olympics in particular is turning out to be an even higher risk undertaking. What are the biggest concerns? Well, the really big concern would be a last minute cancellation. It doesn't look likely at this point, but it's possible. Another risk is that the Games have to be halted um, a few days in because of a COVID outbreak. What I'd say is I think the domestic sponsors are, are in a particularly tight spot here. Because, you know, this was sold to them as a once in a generation opportunity and they might now alienate consumers in their home market, which is the opposite of what they want to do. You know, one recent poll had um, something like 60 percent of Japanese firmly against the games taking place. There are some companies that reportedly offered to stump up yet more money if the games were moved to uh, September, October of this year, delayed again. But as we speak, the games are going ahead in late July. The biggest sponsors, they worry about all of this, but they're a bit less worried because their contracts may span several summer games and winter games. But having said that, you know, they're now facing other pressures, um, for instance, over their participation in the next Olympic Games, uh, the next one after Tokyo, which is the 2022 Winter Games in, in Beijing. And there's, there's growing pressure on big companies to, to boycott those games or to pare back their participation because of China's horrible human rights record, particularly in, in the province of uh, Xinjiang and its treatment of the Uyghurs there. Now, these sorts of criticisms, the pressure to boycott, isn't new. We heard those before the Beijing Games of summer 2008 as well. But if firms do pull out, won't there be plenty of others lining up to replace them? Yes, that's right, there will. What we'll see in the, in the run-up to Beijing, the big global brands are going to find themselves squeezed between, on the one hand, you know, calls to pull away, to disengage, and on the other hand, a fear of retaliation from China. We've seen China whip up boycotts of Western brands over the past year or two. What the big sponsors really have to grapple with uh, is if they pull back from the next Olympics, from Beijing, they might find it hard to get back in. You know, you've seen the Chinese splashing out more and more on sponsorship. Alibaba, the e-commerce giant, is 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 now one of these top sponsors. Look at the uh, the Euros at the moment, the football tournament that's going on. Three of the top 10 and four of the top 12 sponsors uh, of that tournament are Chinese companies. You have Russian companies too. Gazprom has been advertising a lot at that tournament and others. And there's a sort of clear message coming out of this, which is you know, that, that, that undemocratic regimes are happy to splash out for sponsorship and hosting rights and so on at sports tournaments. You know, we're seeing Qatar um, hosting the 2022 Football World Cup. So you know, if Western brands pull out, there's the risk that others take their place and they find it hard to get back in. What else are they doing to try and hedge against a possible PR disaster? For one thing, they've been hiring brand consultants um, like Kantar, um, to assess the possible impact of, you know, either sticking with the games or withdrawing. 
they're also trying to figure out how to make the best of the limited number of spectators that are going to be allowed. You know, when you have fewer spectators, there's less of an opportunity to to boost the brand with promotions at venues or, or to put on corporate hospitality. And then, of course, there's merchandise as well. They have huge amounts of this stuff, you know, piled up in warehouses. And what we're seeing with some of the sponsors is, is to be on the safe side, they're running ads that, for instance, you know, don't mention the Olympics, don't show the Olympic rings, but instead, you know, tell an athlete's story um, and at the same time may, you know, emphasise characteristics like unity and resilience that, that sort of show an awareness of, of the COVID pandemic. And then, you know, some sponsors have put in a bit of extra work and they're putting together dual campaigns. One of them is more Olympic themed, the other one less so or with no mention of the Olympics. And they have the two ready to go. You know, if it looks at the last moment like, um, you know, association with the games uh, is likely to be bad for the company's image, they'll pick one of the two. So given all these calculations and all these pitfalls, should the Olympics still be considered good business? Well, I put that to Andrew Zimbalist, the uh, sports economist I spoke to. Roughly over the last 15 years, maybe slightly longer, there has been a stronger and stronger reluctance on the part of potential host cities to actually engage in the competition to host. They simply found it economically not feasible and environmentally uh, wasteful. This wonderful event where the nations of the world, over 200 nations, sent athletes to live together and to compete on the athletic fields but, and not on the battlegrounds, that's wonderful symbolism. But then the problems begin, and then the questions for the value to corporate sponsors become more and more pressing. Now, for all those concerns, I'm not sure that, that when it comes to sponsors, the games have lost quite as much sparkle as Zimbalist fears. You know, most of them, frankly, are, are still willing to do what it takes to stay in the race, even if that means having to metaphorically put their face masks on or, or hold their noses. Matthew Valencia, thank you very much. Thanks, Ratchina. And thank you so much for listening to Money Talks. If you're not yet an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. Subscribers can read all our analysis of the biggest stories in business, economics and the markets at economist.com. Like why Chinese regulators are cracking down hard on Didi only weeks after the ride-hailing company listed in New York. For all that and more, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll find both the link and our newsletter sign up in the notes for this episode. And you can also have a listen to our sister podcast, The Intelligence, for more on how China is targeting big tech companies. The producers are Amika Shortino-Nolan and Juliette Jabkiro. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer. And the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.